and uh, in light of the day and the emphasis. You know, it's not commanded in Scripture to do this, but, uh, but we're going to do this, uh, celebrate the resurrection. It's kind of every Sunday is supposed to be Resurrection Sunday, but there is a worldwide celebration of it today. And uh, so we're giving that attention. We're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 13. And if you don't have a Bible, the text that I'm going to preach from is in the bulletin. So you can follow it there. Um, one of our church members uh, in the men's Bible study this week, he, he, uh, he shared his experience about when he was working with a ministry that, uh, that works with, uh, especially with high schoolers. And uh, he was very, he was, he was transparent and uh, said that it was weird as, uh, as a grown-up when he was working with this, this ministry to walk back into a high school cafeteria and just feel his heart start to race. And, you know, and to just kind of feel these old insecurities like, I hope someone talks to me. And, uh, and it's weird. It's weird that you could, like, make it all the way through that and go, okay, I know that's behind me, I know that's behind me now. And, uh, and get on with life and, and, uh, and be a grown-up and have a job and all that kind of stuff and then walk back in there and just and, and feel that again, you know, the, the, that strong vibe of that old environment. And that, that may be a little bit of a window into understanding this text better. And this is from the book of Acts. And uh, Luke, that wrote the Gospel of Luke, also wrote Acts. And if it weren't for Acts, it would really be tough to understand how you get from the four Gospels to the rest of the New Testament because just in the, in the Gospels it ends and everything's sort of in Jerusalem and then you get these letters and everything is spread out all over the world. If you didn't have Acts, it'd be tough to understand what happened, right? So Luke gives us this account. He said, I talked to eyewitnesses and I found out what the deal was and here's, here's the scoop. Well, this is Acts chapter 13 and we're going to hear uh, really what, what becomes a sermon by someone who's kind of a new character in this book, and it's Paul, the Apostle Paul. This is from one of his early missionary journeys. He has other people with him. But he, he does what he typically does when he comes into a new city. When, when the apostles went into a city, especially Paul, they typically didn't just stand out on the corner and get like a big sign about Jesus and just go to it. Where's the first place they would go? They would go to the, what, the synagogue. You know, start with people who have any exposure to the Scriptures, show them how you know the one who fulfills these Scriptures, and go from there. Sometimes it was successful, sometimes it wasn't, but that's what he usually did. So we're going to hear him go into a synagogue, and this is earlier in his experience of doing this. Now, we know from his biography and other places in the New Testament that he had an upbringing of a devout Jew. And he said, my career track in Judaism, my star was on the rise until I met the risen Christ. And everything changed, right? But he's going back into this environment. Now, whether he had ever been to this synagogue or not, these are his peeps, right? this This is, they have the upbringing that he had. And he's walking in, and whether that intimidated him or not, we don't know. But we do know this. There's every reason in the world, if he's going to tell them that what you're presently doing is insufficient, there's every reason in the the world for them to be resistant. It's the same now. So what is it that he sets before them as so compelling, not only to him, 
But what can be compelling to them is people who know the Scriptures. And the reason that I, I think this Scripture, if God will bless, could really be helpful to us is that I, I'm not standing in front of a group that is all Hindu or all Muslim. But I'm standing in front of a group of people, a lot, and I make no assumptions, but a lot of whom have been exposed to biblical content. And even with that exposure, you may be sitting here going, I like Easter and I like what we've sung. I still to this day don't know why we get, we're supposed to be so worked up. I still don't understand it. This could be helpful to all of us. Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the Law and the Prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them... By condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. 
Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that even as we want this for all these other churches around us, in our city and in our country and around the world, we want this for ourselves, and that is that your word would really be food for us this morning. That we won't just talk about it, but but digest it and live on it. And we cannot make that happen inside of ourselves. So we place ourselves at your mercy and say, help us to hear. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. About a year and a half ago, a guy named Ron Clark wrote a piece for uh, CNN. And I saw this it's the kind of thing that got sent around on the internet. I saw it at some point in the last year and a half. And Ron Clark was a decorated teacher, young man, but had garnered just these... Uh, it's the second time I've said garnered this morning. Had garnered these awards uh, for, uh, for just being a great teacher and beloved by students. And Oprah Winfrey um, gave him some awards. She recognized his, uh, his achievements. And he wrote this piece for CNN. And the name of it is, What Teachers Really Want to Tell Parents. Now, we have enough teachers in the room. That was, there, was already, there was a murmur just then, if you heard that. So for all the things that, that uh, the teachers wish they could say, but maybe for job security or other reasons they don't, he just he said it out there. Now, I'm not going to read the whole, the whole thing, but, but listen to this one part. He said, he's talking about just why is it so hard? Why is it so hard, teachers with parents? At times when I tell parents that their child has been a behavior problem, I can almost see the hairs rise on their backs. They are ready to fight and defend their child, and it is exhausting. One of my biggest pet peeves is when I tell a mom something her son did, and she turns, looks at him. Now, by the way, Ron just assumed that it's a mom and that the, the, the troublemaker's a boy, and I find that offensive. <laughs> but going back. One of my biggest pet peeves is when I tell a mom something her son did and she turns, looks at him and asks, is that true? Well, of course it's true. I just told you. And please don't ask whether a classmate can confirm what happened or whether another teacher might have been present. It only demeans teachers and weakens the partnership between teacher and parent. And some of you may be teachers who have felt that or experienced that. Now, why do I read that? A teacher, to kind of state the obvious, is somebody who doesn't just have the content to offer. You do need to have content if you're going to teach. But in addition to that, a teacher is also someone who is an eyewitness to what a child does in class. And it's that pairing that's so important. I mean, if it was just data, you could have someone just doing this from a screen. But it's the person who's with the child, hopefully really watching, how does he or she respond? What are they doing well at? Where are they falling behind? That's a teacher. Now, here's the thing. And this really can touch on all of us. Whether you're here this morning and you know you're a Christian, you're convinced of that, or whether you're here and you're not, or you're not sure, is that here's the Word of God. Here are the Scriptures. And they're making these one-of-a-kind claims. And they're coming to us. And it's got this incredible content. It's talking about... It's metaphysical. It's talking about truth. 
and goodness and love and forgiveness and mercy and divine wrath and justice and and law, right? It has all that content. If we're not careful, when we're exposed to that, we can turn to something and sort of... We can be the one saying, is that true? And you can turn to all kinds of things. I mean, you might be turning to uh, your preferences. This just... Okay, here's this book, and it just made a truth claim. Is it true? And what I'm looking at is how I feel about things. Or it could be that I'm turning to my group of friends. Like, okay, here are these truth claims. Here are these assertions. Here's this content in the Scriptures. Is that true? And if my friends respond well to it, then let's go with it. And if my friends are hostile, we drop it. It could be anything. But this is the amazing thing. The Word of God, the Scriptures, Old and New Testament, they're not just coming with content about love and truth and God and man, although it's sure got that. It sure has that. But it's also coming with eyewitness accounts. It's saying, here's what happened. And literally, in the first person, because here's what I saw. Here's what we saw. If you're visiting, we just finished a series on Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Revelation was written by John, the same John, the Apostle John that wrote the Gospel of John. And not only in his gospel, but in the book of Revelation, over and over and over, John is just crazy about the words witness and testimony. He says it in his gospel and he says it in Revelation. Why is that such a big deal? He's wanting us to see, I'm not just spinning a tale. This is not just a fanciful thing that worked for us. I'm telling you, we saw and heard and touched what I'm telling you. All right, now that being said, I I want us to look at how... Here's Paul coming into a synagogue. This could go great, but it could go horribly. He's walking into people that know the law and the prophets, and he knows the law and prophets. But what is it they don't know that could be so helpful to them, even as people who love the law and the prophets? I was about to do this, but they don't have that. They have this. Scroll. If if you love this, what, what can he offer to them? And what he offers is what? The resurrection. And again, this could be helpful if you're here saying, I grew up with this stuff, I know, how to, I know the tune of Christ the Lord has risen today, and it's fun to sing it, but I still don't know why we get so worked up. It's like, I've, I think I tell this story every Easter, but an acquaintance of mine planted a church in Greenwich Village in New York, and he said, boy, if you want to see what, how that's different than the Bible Belt, I'll never forget on Easter Sunday when I preached on the resurrection, and a guy was walking out, and he wasn't trying to be mean, but as he's walking out and shaking the pastor's hand, he said, Okay, so he rose from the dead. So blanking what? He said, okay, more work to do. <laughs> so here's what I want to look at. All right, three things. First off, the resurrection vindicates God's promises. And I'm, I'm trying to be careful here. I don't want to say proves as if, oh, there's this higher authority. And if we appeal to that, that proves the Bible is true. But I'm saying there is something that vindicates God's words, God's promises. Second thing is this. The resurrection was public. Very public. And the third thing is this. The resurrection means that you can be free. 
Now, let's start off. The resurrection vindicates God's promises. Look up in verse 27. And Paul, remember, he's in a synagogue. He says this. He's telling them about Jesus. Maybe they've heard rumors. Maybe they haven't. He says, all right, those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed, and and they did so. And he died, and he was put in a tomb. And what is Paul saying? All right, Jewish brothers, whom I love, this man in Jerusalem, and that would be the city for the Jewish world, this man fulfilled our scriptures when he went into Jerusalem, and he was arrested, and he was condemned by the authorities, and he was executed. He told us ahead of time that would happen, and it fulfilled the scriptures. Now, if that's all Paul had said, let's, let's play devil's advocate. The Jewish congregation could just be thinking, that doesn't prove anything. You know? I mean, think about it this way. If I, Brian Haybig, if, if, I, if I stood up before you and said, I am leaving Greenville... And I am going to, okay, name some area of the world that is not just garden variety Islam, but like a, a, a hotbed of radical Islam. There are pockets, different places in the world. Let's say that I went to one of those, named it, and said, I'm going to that area, and as soon as I get off the bus, I'm going to spread Christianity as much as I can, and then I want to tell you ahead of time, I will be attacked and killed. And then let's say that I went and did that, and I was indeed attacked, and I was killed. Now, what would you think if some people from downtown Prez began to go around and say, Brian was a prophet? If someone heard that, they might think, okay, that's sad, but I just think Brian was mildly observant. <laughs> like that, and I'm, not try, I'm not trying to make light of these places in the world. I'm just saying... Given the circumstances and given the context, that was bound to happen. That was not a a, a supernatural prophecy. Here's Paul saying, this man went into Jerusalem. Well, what did he do? Well, he made these one-of-a-kind claims about himself. He equated himself as being God. He said that he was the fulfillment of Scripture. And he, and, he, and he critiqued present practices and traditions of the Jewish culture, which the hotbed would be in Jerusalem. And he ended up being arrested, and then he ended up being executed. That's not a shocker. And Paul would probably say, you're right, but there's another thing that happened. By which this man that I'm telling you about fulfilled the Scriptures. Where's that? Look in verse 29. Excuse me, verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. Then go down to verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised... And there it is. There is no New Testament canon yet. The Bible is what we call our Old Testament. It says all those promises in these scrolls, the way you can know that God keeps His promises is because it was prophesied that one would come that fulfills all the, pro- all the promises. But part of the prophecy was that he would rise from the dead, and he did, publicly. 
We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Now, th- this starts to take us into why does the church get worked up about this? It's this. If the Bible was just one religious book among many religious books, among many religious claims of different traditions, and we got excited about it, someone could say, you know what, that's great. That is great that it's meaningful and it's exciting to you. But all these other religious practitioners, they're excited about their content. So it's great that you're excited, but don't make what your thing is saying more true than the others. If there was no resurrection, that could be a problem. But what Paul is saying is the fact that he rose from the dead and all these people saw him, people inclined to be glad for that and people inclined not to be glad for that means you must listen to me. And I would say this for the person here this morning who maybe is trying this on for size. First off, it, it brings us great joy that you would do that here. And my hope is that you would keep coming. But as you're trying this on, I want you to hear the urgency of this. And I don't mean that in a browbeating way. I'm, I'm making an appeal. Is that the apostle is saying, if this happened, you must listen. Because if this is true, it changes everything. The stakes are that high. If he rose from the dead, all the promises in this book are trustworthy. If not, all bets are off. You know, if he didn't rise from the dead, that means that when you read about the new heavens and the new earth and eternal life and a new body, then you know what? Maybe Marx was right and that's just kind of the little hit of painkiller that religions give people so they can make it through the hardship of a crummy life. But if he rose from the dead, that means there's actually going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and everything's different. If it happened, all right, and that leads to the second point. Very important, and that is that the resurrection was public. Uh, Look back in verse 30. This is a city away from Jerusalem. They weren't there that day, most likely. So what does Paul say? Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead, and for many days... He appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Now, that's very important. Don't fly past that. For many days, the risen Jesus was around. All these people saw him, and now they are eyewitnesses to what happened. Now, you can kind of fly past that verse without catching it. This is a big deal for Luke. Here's, Here's how he begins the book of Acts. Short quote. He wrote the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts to the same person, Theophilus. Listen to how he begins. In the first book, he means the Gospel of Luke, Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, that's the ascension, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now get this. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Listen to this. Here's what Paul says elsewhere, and boy, will this text get quoted today. 
says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now, what's He saying? If two guys who already were just very excitable guys and prone to whatever, exaggerate or drink too much coffee or whatever, if they were the only people who saw this, it would be suspect. But batches of people, even a batch of 500 people at one time, saw Jesus over a period of days. And what's compelling about that is that as Paul is in the synagogue, he's saying... They're still alive, the eyewitnesses. In other words, if you want to, you can leave this synagogue. And by the way, he's one of them. But if you want to, you can go to this synagogue, out of this synagogue, and you can go find these people, and you can ask them, do you think you saw him or did you see him? And they will say, I'm telling you, I saw him, and it was a game changer. Um, a few years ago, when uh, A.J. Wittenberg, just right after the A.J. Wittenberg School had been built downtown, there was a portrait commissioned of A.J. Wittenberg that is in the, the front area of the school. And our church even got to take part in, in helping, uh, helping make that happen. And so there was a, there was a ceremony to commission, not commission, to, uh, to dedicate that portrait. And uh, A.J. Wittenberg has passed away, but his family was present at this, at this dedication. And through some strange circumstance, I was asked to speak at, at this event. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm a transplant. At that point, I'd only been here about five years. So I thought, I need to read some background about why the school is named after A.J. Wittenberg, right? So pretty early on when I moved here, I got this book about Greenville by Archie Vernon Huff, Jr. So I, I looked up A.J. Wittenberg. And uh, one part that really caught my eye was, uh, I'm just going to read these, these little parts here. It says, in the summer of 1963, A.J. Wittenberg, president of the Greenville branch of the NAACP and a member of the biracial committee, along with the parents of five other African-American students, requested their children be transferred to all-white schools. Now, that's kind of the big reason why that school has its name. But then I read this. <clears throat> The African, um, let me back up. The schools opened peacefully on September 1st, 1964, though law enforcement officials stood by for several days. The African American students were constantly harassed and consequently kept to themselves. Elaine Wittenberg's life was threatened repeatedly, and an FBI agent was assigned to protect her. Now, I guess in the back of my mind I knew this, but it didn't hit me until the moment was when I read that, Elaine Wittenberg was sitting right there. And again, did that change the data? No, it, the data was true. You know, has Archie Vernon Huff Jr. tried to you know, write a reliable history of Greenville? Yes, was the content reliable? But I'm telling you, as far as the felt impact when that was said, that this is real and this is true, when she and her siblings that are still living, when they're sitting there, it landed. 
That's what the resurrection did to the eyewitnesses. To the point where people who had been timid went gangbusters. Everything changed. All right, but that being said, does that mean that what the resurrection gives the church is sort of this ultimate piece of kryptonite, you know, that we can bring out and sort of weaken any other religious claim? You know, so the resurrection is kind of like our way to sort of spike the football in the religion end zone. Like, okay, there, there. You know, every religion whose central figure rose from the dead, raise your hand. Not so fast, Hinduism. You know, so kind of, in other words, to be arrogant about it. No. And, and this is the part that I, I'm, I'm most excited about talking about. I mean, it, it is public, it's true. But it, it's the point in this, it's the point in Paul's words where it goes from being an explanation to a sermon. You know what you need in a sermon, for a sermon to be a sermon? You need doctrine, you need content, but you need application. You take, take that truth and try to apply it to people's hearts. Now, now I want you to hang with me here. Look, look in verse 34. Paul's in a Jewish synagogue. What's he going to quote? He's going to quote Old Testament scriptures. So he starts quoting from Old Testament scriptures. And he qu- look, look at the end of verse 35. He quotes a psalm they would have known. And it's where David says, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. But then he says in verse 36, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. And what did he just say? All right, Jewish brothers, we've got this psalm that we know where David says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. But David could not be the fulfillment of that scripture because we know that David died. David's in a tomb. And David experienced, he decomposed. That's what corruption means. So he can't be the fulfillment of that scripture. And that's why I'm telling you, the fulfillment is this man that I'm proclaiming to you, Jesus, who died and did not experience corruption. Now, there's the doctrine, right? But then what does he do with it? And this is the point where it turns into a sermon. Look in verse 38. He says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, this, if we will hear it, is fantastic. Because Paul, sometimes when he wants to explain to you what Jesus did, he'll state it in different ways. He might say, you're stained and Christ can cleanse us. Or he, and he actually does say this. He might say that you're guilty and what you need is forgiveness. Christ can give you forgiveness. But did you catch the way he framed it in a synagogue? And he's saying it as, as one who loves them. He says, everything that the law of Moses, which is true, 
and authoritative. In fact, that's the problem. Because it's true and because it's authoritative, because it is a covenant between God and His people, and it's the terms, and we've broken the terms, a curse has come upon us. And we can't change our nature to live in a way that will make that curse go away. And it's slavery. It says, everything that the law of Moses can't free you from, I'm telling you, this man who fulfills our scriptures, who rose from the dead, can help you. Because he's actually alive. And I'm I'm not trying to hyper-spiritualize. I'm just sharing this with you. I do this for a living. And I've been a Christian for about 30 years. And even this week, when I got to this point, just in my own thinking and, and, and sermon prep, it sort of hit me again. He's physically somewhere. Glorified body. Not the old body. But physically... He is actually at the right hand of God the Father in a way that if you extended your hand, at some point your hand would stop on His torso. He is that truly risen and physically present. And and what is Paul saying to them? Because He is that real and because He sent His Spirit, if you're in slavery to your sin, and by the way, Jesus said, if you sin at all, You're a slave to it. He can help you. He's alive and He can help you. If you're enslaved, you cannot self-discipline your way out. You cannot positive your way out. You cannot volunteer your way out. You cannot control your way out. And above all, especially in that synagogue, but for us to hear too, You cannot obey your way out. But He can free you. All those curses from the law that you know from the law, you know you don't keep the law. He can forgive you. And if you're here this morning, and that's new to you, cards on the table. This is a church in case you had not picked up on that. And what churches are supposed to do is to tell you that Jesus Christ is wonderful and that this is not a group of good people. This is a group of bad people whom He freed, whom He forgave. That's all we have going for us. And we would invite you to look to this same Jesus and join our number. Doesn't have to be in this local gathering of it, but join this thing called the church. And know that you're free. I had a student when I was a campus minister who became addicted to cocaine. His parents found out, and they put him in rehab, and the rehab was very successful in ending that particular behavior. And so they wanted him to kind of take up something, hobby or something positive. And so he took up swimming addictively. And the first time I saw him after rehab, he was absolutely gaunt because he had transferred one addiction to another, i.e., he could not free himself. Christ can set you free. 
But if you're here this morning and you do believe this stuff, you, you do, maybe you know it and you believe it and you're, and you're for it, can we just say while we're together, we keep falling into thinking, I will find forgiveness by being better. Or, I'll not need to be forgiven because I'll be so good. We are to obey. The law is not suggestions. The law is the law of God. But we cannot obey our way into God's favor. (laughs) Did you catch at the end when, amazingly, after Paul just, again, cards on the table, lays it out there, and all these people want to hear about it. It says there are even devout Jews that want to hear about it. And they follow Paul and Barnabas. And what do Paul and Barnabas say? You've got to get this point. What was it? Verse 43. Who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in what? More Bible reading? More disciplined prayer times? More fasting? You need to continue in the grace of of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can give mercy to those who decidedly do not deserve mercy and do deserve justice. You need the grace of God. Are you here and you've been a Christian 10, 20, 40 years? You need to continue in the grace of God. We cannot free ourselves. We cannot forgive ourselves. Living, risen Jesus gives us forgiveness and life and freedom. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, even as we prayed earlier, whether it's the person who came this morning with joy, and feels full and is energized or whether this, this is all rolling around inside of us and maybe it feels like there's an inner war to part of us wants to reject it, part of us wants to embrace it, we don't know what to do. Or whether it's the person who maybe grew up with this but is so tired and so disappointed with life wonders if it can be that good and that true. Lord, in whatever our state, take your word, cause it to fall on good soil, to bear a hundredfold, make us resurrection people who trust you, who walk with the confidence of those who know this is true. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.